Hello and welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from OnShop.net. Episode 20. Replace small schools with hubs. Part 2. This is part 2 of our episode on small schools. Um, in the last episode, I just to give you a bit of a refresher, I gave a bit of an introduction to small schools and their history and also a rationale as to why we really need to do something creative in order that we save them. In this part of our episode, part two, we're going to look at some of the research on small schools since the start of the 21st century. And we're going to try and find some sort of creative solutions from those. I'm going to, I suppose, try and uh, look at sort of academic work and things like that and try to, I suppose, make it make it a little bit more, um, I suppose, human rather than academic, if that makes sense. Um, and uh, there is a, a good bit to it. So I'm going to... Uh, maybe just focus on that for this particular episode uh, I'm going to have two more uh, parts of the episode part three um, is going to focus on the recent small school symposium that went on um, and uh, I'll dedicate a full uh, slot to that and then finally um, we'll have part four uh, where I'm going to share my own idea which was um, to see where see if it'll go anywhere which is basically if I were the minister for education that I would create these hubs of schools so we will get started now on the second part of the podcast uh, but else basically ultimately at the end I'll be hoping that if I was the minister for the education for education we'll have some starting points anyway to reimagine small schools in the 21st century of Ireland now as I said last week I spent a lot of time defining what is defining what a small school is and I divided them into three categories uh, the first category being the very small school which is one two or three teacher schools medium small schools the four or five teacher schools and then the big small schools which is your six and seven uh, teacher schools and um, we also uh, looked at the history uh, of, of schools and small schools in particular uh, basically that it's um, gone down from 11,000 of these small schools to, to about 3,000 schools and we looked at the reasons why that's happened over the last 200 years and we also explored a little bit why even inf- even if there was infinite money thrown at small schools, it wouldn't save them. So we're going to move on to the 21st century um, where we're going to examine research from Ireland and beyond and the recommendations that have been actually made by international researchers out there and by principals themselves. I think what's best to do is to look at Firstly, at independent research, uh, I suppose, from the OECD, who actually this year came out with a paper. And after that, uh, we'll move on to actually a really good study um, from the IPPN. And it's actually not the outcome of the study that I'll be looking at. It'll be the, the study before the outcomes, because that, was, I feel, was a, a much better uh, paper with much better ideas. Um, anyway, let's get on to the OECD research, which I'm going to summarise as quickly as I possibly can, because I know the OECD is just full of charts and data, and that can't be that exciting. Now, I'm a bit of a data geek, uh, but what I'll try and do is I'll try and describe the important bits uh, of it and see how they work with uh, small schools. Before I do that, I just want to put in my, my usual the full disclosure here. 
I am not anti-small schools. I'm coming from, I, I, I know it sounds weird me having to say something like this, uh, but if you didn't hear the last part uh, of this episode, episode uh, part one of this, it's something I feel I have to say um, because there's such hypersensitivity when somebody talks about small schools, I suppose, in a non-emotive way um, and uh, as if um, I'm trying to close you, close them all down or close you down. I mean, if you're, li- if you're listening, you maybe you work in a small school. I'm not, I'm not trying to shut you down. Uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find ways to keep you open um anyway this is a paper from march of 2019 so three months before i've recorded this episode it's great timing and really it was very strange i thought when i saw it it wasn't actually referenced by the small school symposium because it's actually a very useful paper um it's called learning in rural schools insights from pisa talis and the literature now i'm going to pick the bits relevant to this episode's examination there's loads and loads of data around um of outcomes in science and literacy and things like that. But I'm not really interested in that. Uh, I'm interested in uh, what rural schools look like, so small schools, and what is a small school. So one of the first things uh, one might think is obvious is what does being rural actually even mean? Now, I liked basically in this paper how it states rurality, which is living in a rural area. It's been defined, and this is how they define it, as a socially constructed and based more on abstract characteristics such as feelings of community and traditionalism, or and they say more concrete features such as the landscape or occupational structures. So I think uh, you can read into that. In an Irish context, that's really, really interesting because if you asked 100 Irish people to define rurality, I think you'd get lots of different answers. And this paper is helpful insofar as it tries to define the rural school too. Now, some won't be surprised, basically. Uh, some, some, uh, they've basically tried to define the rural school and, and here's the one that won't be a surprise. A small population or a thinly spread population is one which uh, would define a rural school or a place for a rural school, a rurality. Um, a dwindling population is a second. That won't be any surprise either. For example, in 1950, uh, this, this paper says in Ireland, basically the Ireland is one of the studies, uh, in 1950, about 60% of Ireland's population was rural. Now, in 2018... It was less than 40%. So we can see that rurality in Ireland has dipped greatly in the last uh, 70 years. Ireland is, uh, is also one of the least densely populated countries anyway, even in cities. That's just important to note. But here comes uh, two other points where they, uh, where they um, try and define rurality. One of the points that rur- was that rural communities tend to be of a lower socioeconomic status. That's interesting. However, looking at their research... In Ireland, it's not the case. It actually appears to be negligible, the difference between rural and urban living, which is very interesting. You would also think that uh, the other thing that they notice is that um, rural areas or rurality is also ethically more homogenous with little in the way of multiculturalism or diversity. Now, this might explain, you might think this is true in Ireland because almost 100% of rural schools are denominational, but the figures actually don't reflect it. Ireland's rural schools have almost the same level of diversity as their urban neighbours. That might be surprising to you, but that's uh, that's according to census records. Um, uh, number three here, though, which I think is the most interesting. This is what they say. Rural communities tend to be at a significant geographical distance from other populated centres. The remoteness and accessibility of rural communities shape, among other things, their capacity to hire, retain and develop professionals, the ability of residents to communicate, socialise and work beyond their local community or the possibility to bypass local services. Now, can we honestly say this about all rural schools in Ireland? 
I don't know if we can. There are uh, a number of small rural schools quite in quite close proximity uh, to each other. But anyway, in other words, Ireland doesn't seem to fit into the general definition of rural schools compared to all the other countries in the OECD or most of the other countries in the OECD. Even so, there are some other interesting findings which I've heard mentioned. For example, rural schools tend to be happier places. That's, uh, I've heard that uh, from people um, in, in, and thanks to people who've left feedback on our Facebook page uh, they, uh, that has been noted they tend to be happier places not according to the OECD data. In fact, Irish students in urban settings and rural settings have exactly the same level of happiness. And uh, if you're wondering what that is, you'll be glad to know it's 7.5 out of 10 on a scale of 0 to 10. And that's if you're interested. Another interesting misnomer is that rural schools tend to offer less after-school activities to their pupils. There's actually little difference between rural and urban schools according to the report. You'll also be glad to hear there's no significant difference between any aspect of teaching in urban or rural settings in Ireland. So a lot of uh, a lot of interesting kind of introductory stuff here. It's then they get into the nitty gritty after that. Now, of most interest to us is the idea of reorganising school networks. Now, I'm just going to read what they say verbatim. Um, it isn't going to be mind blowing or anything you haven't heard before. Changing demographics require the effective organisation of local school networks, school consolidation, that is the closure and merger of small schools to form a larger school has often been advanced as a strategy to save costs, okay, that's an argument people use against, and to create educational benefits for staff and students, that isn't ever argued. A consolidated school can offer students a greater array of academic programmes, expanded after school activities and better facilities for learning. I think that's reasonable. Uh, teachers, on the other hand, may have greater access to educational resources and in-house professional development activities, while assessment data could be used more effectively. Also, special needs students might also receive more suitable support. However, there are serious risks and costs associated with school consolidation. So here's the bit that small schools who are against amalgamation might like to hear, such as increased transport costs for students' families and relocated staff, reduced parental involvement and social life, deteriorated local services, reduced school choice and other social costs. Um, Evidence on the negative impact of school closures suggests that following a school uh, closure, students tend to adapt far better than the staff members actually do. Um, so that's uh, very interesting there. Um, the reorganisation of school networks should therefore draw on a broad spectrum of strategies, which includes rethinking how educational services are defined and distributed across school sites, arrangements for cooperation and resource sharing, and the creation of school clusters before engaging in consolidation. So they give a couple of examples. Colombia and Portugal represent two cases that illustrate the potential, but also challenges of school network reforms and the creation of school clusters to maintain broad coverage. And uh, when the closure and consolidation of schools is considered the best available option, stakeholders need to be involved along the process. So that's very fair. Everyone needs to be involved, especially the staff and families, to avoid some of the associated costs. So that's, um, that's interesting there. Um, and the transparent and exhaustive analysis of the impact of school closure for students, family and local community can be helpful and should evaluate, among other quality aspects, the transport arrangements and costs, parental involvement, social relationships, public resistance or students' academic outcomes and well-being. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot there that people would probably agree with. Um, I'm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing it. Um, I'm not sure I'm absolutely buying it, but I, I'll, I'll hear it. I guess, though, in Ireland, and this is my worry, I suppose, is when do we actually decide a school needs to close? And to be honest with you, 
the way we think in Ireland, and I, I, I'm not, I'm tar- I am kind of tarring us all with one brush, but the way we work is we, we have this nimbyism uh, problem that we won't, we won't actually close at all until the very last student leaves. And, you know, that's when it's too late to save a community. I don't think, my argument is we shouldn't wait till that point before we close or amalgamate a school really because we do then kill the heartbeat of the community because the rest of the, co- the, rest of the uh, community is gone when you have just one or two students left in a school. Anyway, that's the international research. Um, but an Irish context um, is probably best, I think. And it's who better to uh, look at the Irish context than the organisation that, I suppose, I guess, in inverted commas, represents principles, which is the IPPN. And uh, basically, the IPPN have long championed small schools and they form part of their campaigns all the time. Um, as far back as 2003, that's over 15 years ago, the IPPN were involved in very good research about small schools and their future. The final paper was published in 2005, but I actually think their paper before that, the year before, the 2004 paper, is much better and it's much well met, better laid out. So it's well worth looking through this in some detail and seeing if anything has happened in the 15 years since it was published. Now, it's interesting to read the, fir- it's interesting to read the first few sentences of uh, the foreword of this document, um, this 2004 document, because I think it's, it lays out everything quite nicely. And here it is. The future of small schools and teaching principalship is of major importance to Irish education. Rapid curriculum change in tandem with significant legislative demands. Now, remember, this is 2004 when this was written. So this is before child protection, GDPR, TUSLA, all those guys, TRID, all these guys came in, has placed immense pressure on small schools and on teaching principals in particular. Currently, the only alternatives open to small schools that are experiencing declining numbers and lack of applications for principalship are closure or amalgamation. Nothing has changed. Securing the future of small schools as a vital part of the rural community was central in IPPN's decision to establish a research studying following IPPN Conference 2003. The Hay Group report in 2003 also recommended alternative structures should be explored which may include clustering arrangements in order to provide a more effective approach to the maintenance and governance of small rural schools. This paragraph could have been written today and it would still be relevant. The end of the foreword brings us to an international thought. The future of small schools is an issue that has been addressed in a creative and innovative ways worldwide. Models as varied as hub schools, clusters, um, rectormsumraid, I think that's, I've butchered that word, it's a Swedish word for a principal's area. The Resso Rural d'Ecole, uh, which is my best uh, French accent for saying rural uh, networks of schools. Uh, ZERs, the Rural Education Zones, that's in uh, Catalonia. And federations have evolved as solutions in other countries following much debate and discussion. It's now time for us all as education partners to find our own creative and innovative Irish solutions to this worldwide challenge. Now, as I read through this paper, I was really interested that almost every single thing has remained exactly the same as it is right now in 2019 as I'm recording this. It's as if at some point somebody said, we're going to hit the pause button on any action with regards to small school. 
The paper's introduction states things we already know. For example, in the 1960s, the government argued that pupil achievement in small schools was less than bigger schools. However, we know this isn't true, and it also recognises the problems. We also recognise that small schools have disadvantages for pupils, teachers, and especially principal teachers. Even the improving economic climate of the late 90s was not enough to equip small schools to a level where children would have access to facilities that would normally be found in larger schools. Now, this was written just before things got even better. So things were getting even better um, when this was written. This was just before the Celtic Tiger went absolutely crazy. Um, anyway, just think how many cuts have happened since then and how this has to have affected principals and the schools they're managing. If it was really bad then, gosh, it must be terrible now. The paper is really long, so I'm just going to bring you the snippets of the highlights, really. The full document is freely available on the internet and it's definitely well worth a read. Part 1, it's divided into three parts, and part 1 throws up lots of what we've discussed in the previous episode, and it then moves on to talk about research of the viability of small schools under some headings. So, one heading was curriculum provision and social contribution. We've discussed this. It's no big deal. Economic viability. Again, this isn't really a concern of mine. I don't think uh, this, we should talk about the small schools debate in terms of economics. The third bit was small schools and class size and pupil outcomes. Again, we've discovered from international research, none of this makes any difference. Uh, small schools are going to close down whether you have a pupil teacher, teacher ratio of a 28 to 1, 20 to 1, 15 to 1 or 1 to 1 the way th the, if we don't change, uh, if we don't come up creative ideas. The paper goes on to research indicating that in small schools, the role of the teacher is more difficult than that of a bigger school due to multi-grade classes, which is fair enough. Internationally, it seemed while teachers found all of this kind of difficult, it was balanced out by the pleasure of closer relationships with their pupils. Now, to me, this is interesting, but probably not for this particular episode, to be honest with you. I mean, it's, it's interesting to uh, the whole idea of closer relationships and in, in smaller schools versus bigger schools. I will say, however, that it worries me that we seem to be looking at two different beasts when we look at the small school versus the big school. The research is indicating that big schools equal better academic outcomes and small schools equal worse, but big schools equals poor relationships and small schools equals good relationships. Now, I'm not sure I particularly agree with these with either assertion. In fact, I'm, I'm certainly not. I, I don't agree with them at all. But neither are actually relevant, I guess, to this debate, which is trying to keep small schools open. I don't think it's a good argument to keep small schools open because of difference. I, all schools should be positive academically and relationally. However, what's uncom uncomparable is the role of the principal in the big and small school. A principal in a big school has one job and a principal in a, and a, principal in a small school has two jobs. Um, the paper discusses the teaching principle from an Irish perspective. And this is what they say. Principals felt that the quality of teaching and learning in their classrooms was compromised and that children were losing out due to the dual role of administration and teaching. Problems being experienced by principals of small schools in trying to perform their dual role of teaching and administration were also expressed by principals in a recent survey conducted by the IPPN and also in the conclusions of the Hay Group report. It says, we conclude that the significant proportion of small schools within the system places considerable pressures on the ability of teaching principals within these schools to effectively deliver the leadership aspects of their role. That's from the Hay Group. And the workload of principals was considered as impossible by some teachers with the juggling of administration, leadership, management and teaching tasks causing considerable frustration and stress. The leadership development for schools that's uh, research reports, mentoring and induction programs for first time principals are welcome recent initiatives. So that's now uh, become the mentoring um, uh, system from CSL uh, that are aimed at developing and supporting school leaders in dealing with this daily challenge. So what were the solutions outlined? Well, 
there was a white paper in 1995 uh, that suggested development of networks as a means to improving the lot of teaching principals and their staff and pupils. And some efforts were made uh, to facilitate or promote the development of these networks. And the organisation of county networks by the IPPN for principals and dirty, uh, deputy principals <laughs> since 2000 has been a very significant development in addressing this need. OK, so that's pretty good. We've uh, that that was one thing we, the IPPN developed networks, I must say. Um, that was useful. So we're all fixed then. Well, of course not. The government decided to push the boundaries of the idea of clusters or networks. Because in 2003, the National Progress Report of School Development Planning Initiative in 2003 highlighted this progress and stated consideration should be given to increasing the uses and effectiveness of clusters through expanding the range of activities involved. They couldn't leave them alone. So they basically said such expansion might include the sharing of secretarial expertise, resources and other supports via clusters. So basically a bit of cost saving there, I think, from the uh, progress uh, report of school development planning. The sharing of principles, administrative time and workload, ways of addressing issues of teaching and learning could be explored through clustering of appropriate personnel. So, yeah, seriously. Yeah, that is basically what they have. In fact, in part one of this paper, that's effectively the conclusion. Clusters. That's it. Um that is the conclusion from part one. They suggested that clusters were the solution. Um, those of you who've heard of the cluster games, that's any principal who's been listening to this. This is a term that was coined by a principal in 2018 to describe, or I think it was 2019 actually, to describe the uh, SET allocations that year. Uh, they might uh, they might laugh at that, the cluster games. We, um, if, if you don't, if you hadn't heard anyway, we uh, saw um, how clustering at a very simple level in, um, in primary schools panned out. And this is one major issue that will never be in a research paper. Well, it's very unlikely this is going to be in a research paper. You see, the thing is, it's collegiality and more pointedly, the lack of it. Now, the IPPN have quite rightly brought about the idea of local networks, which is another name really for clusters. It's where groups of schools in an area will meet together regularly to discuss similar issues. And in fairness, this is what happens right around the country. And if nothing else, it's a safe space to vent frustrations and so on. However, if we look at the cluster games back in uh, back the, earlier this year, the idea was that the Department of Education released a number of hours to every school. This is to get uh, special education uh, teaching hours. And these matched the number of hours per week a school would get for SET teaching. So I'm going to call them set hours. Um, a full set week, basically. A full, uh, set, a full week is 25 hours. So the idea was if you got 15 hours, you might find a school with 10 hours and you'd make a cluster. So that you'd have a full-time post, a full-time permanent post of 25 hours. Uh, the 15-hour uh, school would be the base school. So they would uh, they would uh, own the teacher, let's say, or uh, if that, for want of a better word. Now, this would obviously be an ideal situation. In fact, you could say one of the main reasons why local networks were established it would be really to, to sit down together with all their hours, uh, come and meet with them and say, I have this number of hours, I have this number of hours, I have this number of hours, and try and find ways where everyone would be matched up to create 25-hour clusters. Isn't that, a, that would be a really nice idea. So all the Carlo principles or all the Dundalk, Dundalk principles, all the principles up in, Duny, in Northwest Dundalk or wherever, um, you know, they would sit down, they, they wouldn't uh, do anything, or they'd, be, they'd have a meeting and they'd dole out the hours, they'd share them out together to make sure that everyone within the, in their area would get 20, as many 25 hours and, you know, see as, as a... Do you think that happened? Do you think that happened in any local network in the county? In the country, never mind the county. Tell it did. No, it didn't. The minute the hours came out, principals are on the phone trying to sort themselves out. They didn't care about anybody else. Not the slightest iota of a care about any other school. 
In fact, when I mentioned this to one of my colleagues, he actually basically said that collegiality is all well and good, but when it comes down to it, he'd no trouble screwing over another colleague. So his, at least, uh, his, he'd get his hours and uh, his, his, uh, he'd get the 25 hours. You know, at least he was honest, to be honest with you. Their schools scraped, they were schools scraping together 25 hours from the most ridiculous of combinations that ultimately were no good to them anyway. One hour here, three hours there, five hours there. I actually took a look at my at the local list and I made a number of easy clusters uh, before when the hours came out. And I can almost guarantee that over 50% of them didn't even happen because people rushed to the phone and sorted themselves out. They didn't care. Where's the collegiality? Where's the clustering? As well as that, this year I decided not to engage with the process because, uh, to be honest with you, I, 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 can't, I can't buy into the lie of collegiality, really. And, and basically, I said, you know what, I'm not going to buy into this. So I, d- I decided not to engage. I didn't ring people. I waited to see if someone would, uh, if uh, there would be a, a, a bright idea to cluster people. Just for the record, two years before that, I, um, I arranged. Um, hours uh, in my area I, I tried to create that kind of cluster um, but anyway that that aside I didn't this time because do you think I got any thanks anyway <laughs> but uh, I did in fairness I got a little bit of thanks not much though anyway uh, I decided not to engage with the process and I tried to observe what would happen so I got a number of phone calls wondering if I had any spare hours so that was normal because principals were on the phones trying to find, sort themselves out basically and these were a bit of a pain obviously because None of these phone calls just take 10 seconds. Like it isn't, you know, have you got any hours? No, I don't. Okay, goodbye. You have to ask about the school, about your family, how crap this clustering process is, all that kind of stuff. However, on one occasion, a principal, not from my locality, by the way, as it happens, rang. Now, I wasn't available to take the call at the time. And 10 minutes later, she rang back. She rang again twice. And I still wasn't available. I was actually in a meeting. I actually genuinely was in a meeting. It wasn't one of those things where, oh, I'm sorry, he was in a meeting. However, as it sounded really, really urgent, like I, I finished my meeting and my secretary said she's rung like three times. So I rang her back as soon as I was out in case someone was dead. Yeah, do you know? Um, so anyway, she basically said uh, I rang and basically she got on the phone. She said, it's fine. I got someone from my cluster now. And as I was in the middle of the first sentence of polite small talk, she just, she just hung up on me. Like, <laughs> anyway, um, to me, this whole episode sums up the reality of collegiality networks and clusters does that mean that all principals in ireland are horrible people of course it doesn't no way of course it does not our education system is set up in such a way as to discourage collegiality every school is a private entity and every school receives funding and staffing according to the number of pupils they have enrolled and basically for every two pupils enrolled in a school, that's the value of a week's uh, secretary wages because grants are based on the numbers. The set allocation means that for every 25 hours you have, you get a teacher. So if you don't, the school loses a teacher or might lose a teacher that they already have. So the school up the road is also fighting for the same number. So naturally, a principal is going to want to make sure they get the most for their school and they'll have to screw over their friends up the road, even if they are friends. Now, this is why local networks only work to a point because everyone is competing for the same customers. We are we only where we are. We can't invent children um, from from places. We can't. Um, we basically are, are, are competing for the same children in a, in a particular area. It's not like a business uh, in the business world where there's local networks and they work well because while they're similar in some ways, they all provide probably very different uh, services. You're not likely to get two tile shops in the same um, in the same uh, local business network because they're directly competing for the same customers, or um, they're certainly not going to be as collegial, let's say, as the, the tile shop and the um, and maybe the paint shop because they. Uh, but anyway, 
So anyway, at last I have my first, I do have a suggestion for small schools. Uh, I don't think I've come up with any of my suggestions, but I will come, uh, I'm going to, uh, in, ep- in part four of this um, episode, I'm going to um, list all of them. But my first suggestion really, and this is one of the things that I, I think would be key uh, to saving small schools, is to get rid of competitiveness, competitiveness in school. How do we do this? Well, I'm going to tease you a little bit and I'm going to make you wait uh, for the full explanation. But I promise I will come back uh, at the end of episode, uh, at the end of, of part four of this, of how to save school. But if effectively, you know, it's, you can probably guess, get rid of competitiveness. Um, that's that's kind of my, my first thing. Part two of this IPBN research, though, focused on some visits to rural schools around Europe. It's really, really well worth a read um, because it's really interesting what they found. I'm just going to focus on some of the points that were noted. Uh, first up was France and a rural network of schools that was developed by their equivalent of the Department of Education. So basically, um, this is what they did. So there's a smaller pupil-teacher ratio between rural and urban schools. So they have a 20 to 1 ratio instead of a 28 to 1. In Ireland, actually, we have 18 to 1 ratio uh, versus about 25 to 1 ratio, uh, which is actually less than that. But um, we all know how that actually works in, in, in reality. Um, but at the same time, we do on, on paper have something similar. You've got, a, uh, uh, you've got to guess that the French government are also going to lie about their pupil-teacher ratios. Um, a minimum of three schools are networked. Um, but uh, this is the second point. A minimum of three schools are networked, but they, there could also be four or five, depending on the size and location of the schools. Now, ideally, all of the schools from these... Um, from these uh, uh, from these clusters will feed into the same second level school. Now I'm interested in whether there's free choice uh, as to which school what school they go to within that cluster. Um, and the third point is each network has a principal assigned as a cluster coordinator who has one day off per week for coordination work. That's also interesting. There's nothing earth shattering either. What did strike me was the fact that the principal is a teaching principal had much less to do on like Irish Irish principals. So, for example, they don't have any responsibility for paying bills, for the school maintenance, for cleaning, for caretaking, for secretarial stuff, paying any ancillary staff, the allocation of classes, unless a problem arises, um, a professional prof- or even the professional performance of his teachers. That's kind of interesting. They they do not have responsibility for any of that sort of stuff. So, um. I mean, as you as you know, uh, an Irish principal, an Irish teaching principal, has responsibility for almost all of that. The second example is from Catalonia, and basically, in a nutshell, they cluster schools and they have a principal of principals coordinating the schools. It's an interesting uh, concept, which I'll come back to later because it is another example. Um, and the final example came from Sweden, and I won't lie. From reading it, I think the IPPN seemed very keen with it. Now, to be honest, I think there's a lot to be said for it um, as well. And here's a summary from the paper because I think it's pretty good. This is the organisation of schooling in Sweden. Most big schools work similarly to Irish big schools. Everything is devolved more or less from the state, so there's lots of autonomy. That's similar enough as well. When it comes to small schools, what they have is something called a rectorsumrade, I think, or a rectorsumrade. Raid. Uh, anyway, it's translated as a principal's area. And basically it appears to be a fairly similar to that Catalonia example insofar that you have a principal of a number of schools. And the thing that really struck me was when a small school was decided to be unviable. And this is what I thought was interesting. And the figure was 30. So if a school reached 30, it was considered unviable. So when I say reached, I mean downward. Does that number 30 sound familiar? If you cast your mind back to our last episode, in 1927, the Department of Education talked about amalgamations um, being forced on schools and considered schools to be unviable at below 30 pupils. Hmm. And this is how they figure it all out. And I quote, 
it's justified on the basis of demographics and economics. I'm interested in the demographics. If closure is imminent, the decision is made and the justification is that it may result in pupils of a particular grade having insufficient peer contact. So effectively, this is the, the idea. It's about peer contact. Interesting. Closure also arises when the cost of keeping a school is considered prohibitive and resources will be better utilised in a larger unit. Eh, I'm not that interested in that. Transporting pupils 50 kilometres in the morning is not uncommon, though 12 to 20 kilometres is reported as the norm. Okay, and local interests and parents can exert their influence on a closure debate at municipality council level. That's the local political uh, uh, level. So this basically comes down to our own trust in politicians. So basically, um, if a school looks like it's closing in Sweden, parents and local groups can exert their influence to basically say, no, 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 you're not going to close the school. This is why. And the local council will decide on it. So do we trust our politicians? And I'm not sure what local politics is like in Sweden, but I can imagine if a school was threatened with closure using the same context, nothing would close in Ireland. Nothing. There is no votes in closing schools. However, this is the Swedish way and we'll move on and come back to it again. By the way, there is no such thing as a teaching principle in Sweden. Basically, the principal is the leader of learning in several schools and each school is led by a team leader similar to a deputy principal or an assistant principal one. They take care of the day-to-day -day running of, of, of teaching in the school, really. Now, the role of the principal um, in these uh, schools, so this principal of this uh, principal's area, I'm, I'm really not going to try and pronounce that, that word in Swedish again, has particular responsibility for uh, supporting individual staff members and school team leaders pursuing curricular development um, determined at their central and school level, all that sort of stuff. They're also responsible for overall budgetary planning, staff appraisal, team building, coordination of before and after school activities, uh, child welfare services and the reporting of school self-reviews the to the municipality the principal rarely if ever teaches does this sound familiar to any of you it sounds like an administrative principle to me the final section of this paper was the result of a focus group of principals this is part three of the paper and this to me is a real small school symposium unlike the one that happened a few weeks ago which i'll be discussing in the next part of the episode i'll come to that i suppose after this anyway this is about uh, the focus group of uh, principals in Ireland. And the idea of this focus group is to be able to focus on the problems at the time. So this is in 2004, which were as follows. And here were the, the questions that were asked. One, how can small schools be enabled to provide the full range of educational experience to their children as is expected of all schools since the introduction of the revised curriculum in 1999? So this was the new curriculum as it was at the time. Um, two, how can small schools be administered effectively taking into account the increased demands in this domain in schools over the last decade? And these were the, and here was the conclusions uh, from those two questions. One was clustering of schools, two were a federation of schools and three were hub schools. So this is, these were the uh, things they considered. Now the most interesting thing from my point of view is the first sentence. And this is the uh, first sentence. Firstly, there was agreement that there was a need to change from the present situation. There you go. I mean, everyone agrees that and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Um, but anyway, there was agreement. But let's go on. The main reason put forward centred on the immensely difficult dual role of the teaching principal in terms of demands of teaching and curriculum, administration and policy formation aligned to the ever increase. I could go on. You can you can probably finish the sentence. I could be listing the same things today, but the complaints outlined were curriculum overload, administrative wor uh, workload, too much paperwork, lack of substitutes. You get the idea. The same stuff. 
The advantages are nothing new, and to be honest, nothing, I think, anyone could justify as a compelling reason. The principal knows everything that goes on all the time is one reason, and we do a great job. I mean, I know I sound harsh saying this, but they aren't just good, they're not good enough reasons to justify themselves. You know, the principal knows everything that goes on all the time. That's, I don't see that as a great thing. And we do a great job. I'm sure they do. I think we all do a great job. It's a tough job. We do a great job. Every school principal does a wonderful job. And knowing what's going on all the time is not necessarily an advantage. It also doesn't solve the problem that rural populations are declining despite these assertions. Anyway, back to the problems which required solutions because they weren't and they haven't gone away. First one is amalgamation. And basically this was discussed in the photo, uh, focus group um, with uh, teaching principals. The majority of the principals were against the idea of amalgamation. I don't think anyone would be surprised by that. Um, even those who favoured the idea recognised there is a great deal of local opposition from communities, which makes it extremely difficult to close schools in the current circumstances. At the, uh, in, those day, in, in that time, there was, it was the middle of the Celtic Tiger, so I suppose that was one reason. I don't know what those current circumstances would be different to today's circumstances. Anyway, amalgamation is a big cost to the community. This is what one principal says. Small schools are closer to family values don't know what that means um, closer to family values that sounds very right wing anyway the other point raised had to do with the loss of identity resulting from amalgamation now these arguments are problematic again because one can't do nothing you can't do nothing with rural population decline it seems really silly to have tiny tiny schools in very old buildings until they eventually die off surely it's better to join small communities together and again we'll come back to this the second idea was something called hub schools now uh, this is not the same definition of hub uh, schools as I had before I as, uh, recorded this episode. I have a different um, uh, definition. So let's call it, this is the actual definition of hub schools, not Simon's definition. So according to the paper, the concept of hub schools comes from Australia, Queensland, uh, um, to be precise. And small schools have access to specialised facilities and to specialist teachers in areas of in the areas of physical education, ICT, the arts, etc. These resources may be located in a large town school or a hub school. So people, with, so small schools would travel to a hub school in order to uh, do those sort of subjects. Now, such amenities benefit the large school, but also feeder schools. And pupils from small outlining feeder schools are bussed into these hub schools on a timetable basis in order to benefit from those facilities. And do you know what? They didn't like it. Nope. Uh, most people who were against the idea, which was basically the majority, were concerned about the practicalities of the idea. Children travelling to hub schools would present its own problems. How to timetable them? I, I would suggest you would timetable them, would solve the problem of timetabling. Others comment that it would be much better to bring the resources to local schools. Yeah, let's let's have swimming pools in all schools rather than have children travel to the hub. I mean, not, like... We have to be realistic as well. Another point against hub schools was there could be negative effects on the small schools that were supposed to be helped. There would be a downgrading of one's own school. So basically it would lead to morale problems for staff and pupils. So basically they'd be going to these nicer schools, I suppose. Um, and, and I suppose maybe the unsaid there was some um, parents might go, do you know what? We'll move up to this uh, better school up the road instead of this, you know, less uh, resource school that we have, a local school. Anyway, similarly, the point was made that it could lead to a loss of sense of identity for the school. Sense of identity. Okay, the next idea was clustering. Look, I'm not going to repeat myself about the need for collegiality before this happens. Suffice to say, principals in the group believed it was happening already. 
today uh to anyway yeah they they uh, this this uh, anyway i'm not going on about it again to me it's hugely problematic because it isn't we, we, I, I, mean, I don't know i know i've only given one example of the set uh teaching resource but at every occasion uh, uh there's you know anytime something happens where we have to make a decision um look drihid for example where we where principals couldn't be collegial enough not to take part in drihid despite 90 percent of us saying no everybody's doing it anyway to be honest this is the most it basically it was a really boring um solution anyway um because basically i think it's happening already um it's not uh, by the way uh, and perhaps informally in some cases it is but in general it's not the case and to be honest you know informal clustering is not a good policy for success um do you know getting a teacher to cluster between five schools to give a principal one day a week of admin leave that sort of thing it doesn't really solve the problem. It's a sticky plaster, let's say. And what? Do, and, and basically what I referred to in the last episode is a step in the right direction, basically in the right direction for basically uh, make um, closing small schools a little slower. Um, you know, basically we're delaying the inevitable closure of small schools by simply tinkering around and putting little sticky plasters. And anyways, if to cement my point here, the paper outlined feedback regarding the clusters. This would be a problem. Compatibility of principals and teachers would be a big issue. Schools would need to have a shared vision, otherwise it wouldn't work, so we might not get on. It was pointed out that clustering had not worked well in some instances when organised by the PCSB, which is now the PDST. The point was made that there is a need to develop a collaborative culture which should not always be assumed to exist. So effectively, we don't all get on. We will screw each other over. Similarly, the point was made that the needs of individual schools are different and there may be personality problems giving rise to competition between schools. I mean, they're just basically admitting it's not going to work. It would require active cooperation from staff who were like-minded and generous. At worst, some felt it could become like a talking shop and would further increase workload. There would be a particular problem um, when there was a dominant principle in a group, which would result in personality clashes. And perhaps the most negative comment, it's an airy-fairy solution. I mean, they've just basically answered why this is a terrible idea, having informal clusters. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, informal stuff doesn't work. Refer, let's refer back to the cluster games and Drihid and all the other things we're supposed to be doing uh, of collegiality and then guess what do you know what do you know what happens actually <laughs> sorry I just think this is hilarious now that I uh, now that I'm saying it, I, wrote, I wrote I wrote this down as a note but I think it's really funny one year later they published their conclusions on small schools called New Horizons for Smaller Schools and Teaching Principalships in Ireland and guess which model they've chosen as their policy this one this one why well because we'll see from the remaining ideas, the others basically were worse received. So effectively, the key policy from the IPPN was basically decided not by how successful how the model was, but how they were received by 50 principals in a focus group. So, I mean, but sure, that's a lovely, but, you know, I mean, basically what they've done is 50 principals sat in a room and were least, um, were, were least angry about informal clustering. So this became the IPPN's policy on small schools but you know sure they threw in a few lovely academic references at the bottom and it's laid out like a thesis so it has to be good research i mean anyway this is the final idea from the uh, 2004 paper and uh, basically this is the one that i'm really interested in and it's called the federation of schools what i actually meant when i said hubs i didn't know this was actually a thing the final idea was a federation of schools the creation of a federation school occurs when a new school is created under the management of a single board of management with one principal from a number of existing schools these schools continue to function catering for the respective catchment areas in their existing premises so you've got loads of small schools or a few small schools in one area but um and, and basically there's 
one single board of management over them. This has the advantage of a number of schools being organised as one school and is similar to the clustering except the individual schools would not now function as independent units so they basically come together as one school and rather the decisions would be taken for the federation as a whole rather than for individual schools within it. Now you won't be surprised to hear that this wasn't well received. One point that emerged was this arrangement would, loo- would pose particular problems in the relationship between the overall administrative principal and the principals in the small schools. And some took the view that the role of the junior principals would be so diminished they would lose status. Now, they would, they'd lose their status. How terrible is that? While others thought it would enable them to get alive. Well, there is more. That's the most common sense thing I've heard so far. Anyway, I'm just going to read what was said about this and let you uh, draw your own conclusions. And please note, this is the model pretty much that's used in Sweden and the Catalonia uh, in, the, in the part one of this. So here it is. The majority of views ran counter to the federation concept. One problem was that the administrative principal would get to know teachers in their base school, but would be seen as a visitor in the other schools. Other concerns were with having another layer of authority. The view was that the administrative principal would be seen as an inspector. A particular concern was with the amount of travel that would be required. My goodness. Instead of having a walking principle, there'd be a driving principle. Boom, boom. The Federation idea is perceived to be the most radical option considered. Okay. Um, in this regard, the view is frequently expressed that the differences between schools in ethos, culture and traditions were just too great. Too great. Imagine, imagine having a, um, two schools two miles up the road from each other. Their, their culture is completely different to make this a viable option. The issue of the loss of independence was also stressed. The commitment and ownership of everything belongs to the school. There is something blessed. I'm, I'm really getting interested in the use of traditional family, family values and blessed, all this sort of religious language used anyway, about that. There this was expressed in a variety of ways including the federation solution had potential for conflict each school has individual needs and represents a very particular community therefore making decisions for the greater good of all schools in the federation would be impossible there is also strong opposition to the suggestion that the federation principal uh, need not be a teacher and you have to be a teacher to know how to run a school in fairness I agree with that um, the other point that was made was that the one board of management for the schools in a federation will be unwieldy and ineffective I have no idea why that would be I think it would be I mean I can't actually see why that would be the, would be a case. So I mean, it was pretty much shot down, despite it being a very successful model um, in in the in the couple of countries that were in the study, um, based on the fact that they feel that individual schools are completely different to each other. We're, we're all like snowflakes, not in the twenty first century generation Z way. We're completely different. No two schools are the same. Uh, they have totally different cultures. Um, Okay, well, there was one other suggestion from within the group because they were the ones brought to them. This was the um, suggestion from the group. The idea of a qualified teacher shared between a few schools to relieve the principal. Now, it's it's actually amazing how cemented the view of one day a week of admin leave um, is a solution to the plight of small schools. Every day, everywhere you look, this seems to be the answer. It's not the answer. It's not close to the answer. It's a step in the right direction for prolonging the death of a school. And yes, I've been there. One day we could have made no difference to my work-life balance when I was a teaching principal. Once you're out of the classroom, you're dead, you're meat, you are fresh meat and that's what you are and you're available and you're sought after for every little thing. When you're in your classroom, you're left alone. I'll sort that out myself. Jeez, I'll have to wait. He's teaching in his classroom. When you're in your office trying to catch up in your admin work, ah, sure, he's only in his office. He's grand. I mean, this is the thing. You get nothing done. Really, you honestly get nothing done. Perhaps at best, it gives you a little bit of a breather in so far as you might get one thing done a week. But overall, it doesn't really help. Or maybe maybe that's just me. Well, a key sentence was, there is 
a lack of understanding among larger schools for the plight of smaller schools. And this is something I keep hearing over and over again as I delve into this subject. And one of my problems, and it's probably my own fault, but I cannot for the life of me understand what I am not understanding. I have to admit, reading this section over and over and over again, and I still failed to understand what I'm not getting. I cannot understand what I can't, what I'm being told I can't understand. Maybe that's the point. The end result of this focus group could be summed up in the following sentence. The independence of schools and indeed of the principle of a small school is jealously treasured. It goes on to state that schools are tied up into parishes historically and you get the whole mentality of the field where the closure of a small school is like the death of a community. Look, it's a mindset that's deeply, deeply rooted. And I'm just going to read the next two paragraphs because to me, I can't really summarise them. And I think they pretty much say everything that needs to be said from this paper. With this independence goes a belief that small schools are doing a very good job and would do an even better job if the inordinate administrative leadership and management burden on the teaching principle could be solved. Manifest in the present interviews in several ways is the view expressed that small schools are the rule, not the exception. This is true in terms of the number of schools, but not the number of children served by the school. It is also seen that the almost total rejection by principles of the amalgamation option. So almost total rejection by principles of amalgamation. There is recognition that this is yesterday's solution and it is a not non-runner in the future. The interviews indicated a strong sense of the link between the school and the local community and there is a sense which many small schools believe that real education is found in small schools. The second tradition has to do with informally, informality in procedures. This is tradition, which is deeply rooted in the education system. It is worth remembering that only a generation ago, the only formal school record was the school roll book. Schools, rightly, are concerned about the experiences they offer to children and teachers, and less so about the formal statement and or recording of policies, guidelines, mission statements. This results in a concern that any arrangement may create only an additional layer of bureaucracy and add to the administrative burden without improving educational experiences. This is probably where I just can't understand small schools. And I have to admit that it is hard for me to read this without without thinking. It sounds a bit like somebody saying we think we're great and basically you're just trying to kill us off and we're not going to change because we know we're great. I know that sounds really harsh. I know it does. And I, I, I guess I have to conclude that it must be true. I don't understand small schools. I, I just don't understand it. And anyway, as I and I, I mean, I, I absolutely see why they should stay open. None of this keeps them open. All it does is says make our jobs easier, but it doesn't keep them open. Population decline is happening. Anyway, as I said there a few minutes ago, the year later, the IPPN concluded their research and just went with the easiest option, clustering. Now, perhaps I can only conclude that this is just the way it is. I don't understand. I just don't understand. And in some ways, it's probably similar to the way I don't understand how Catholic schools insist they're inclusive. It doesn't really matter how much one points out all the issues that make them not inclusive because they say we're inclusive and you can't really do anything with it because that's the answer. Um, and to be perfectly frank, when they, if you push them for an example, the example they give is not very inclusive. Anyway, that aside, I, it's, a, it's a hard one because where does it really leave us? And where it's going to leave us 
is at the end of part two of this podcast episode. And what we're going to do is we're going to try and find out in part three of this episode, which is coming next week. And next week, we are going to look at 2019, 15 years later, 15, 16 years later from the IPPN research, the small school symposium uh, where the uh, various stakeholders tried to tried again to solve the conundrum of the future of small schools. I hope you enjoyed this episode and be sure to tune in every single Wednesday morning just in time for your midweek stump. Now, as I said last week, it's July. You probably don't even know what day of the week it is. But anyway, you'll know it's the end of the week because uh, the middle of the week because this episode will be out and you will need your blood boiling. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify or any other podcasting app by searching for either on Shaw.net or if I were the Minister for Education. I'd really appreciate you subscribing to this podcast so each new episode will be available to you immediately after its release. Please also feel free to review this podcast so others can find it more easily. Look, I know this is a heavy enough, um, a heavy enough episode with a bit of academic uh, sort of stuff. I hope I tried to explain it in human terms. Um, I, I guess I've, I'm halfway through my, um, my, my episode. I'm in a little bit of a quandary myself. Uh, hopefully, in the next two episodes, I'll come out of it with some great conclusions. Anyway, until next week. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye bye. Thank you.